On today's show, we're pulling back the curtain and revealing some secrets from an AI insider. He's going to talk to us about new AI use cases we didn't even know existed. Some really mind-blowing ways about how we could be working with machines in the future that I hadn't even considered. And stick around because we're going to tell a funny story about someone who tried to replace themselves with AI. That and much more on today's episode of Marking Against the Grain. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner, CMO at HubSpot. I'm joined by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO at Zapier. Let's get into today's show. There is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. On today's episode of Marketing Against the Grain, we're talking with Gabriel Hubert, who is the co-founder of Dust, longtime product leader from Stripe, now new startup in the AI space. And we're going to talk all about AI today. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. So you're French, but you sound kind of like you're English because you lived in England for a while. You got to love the person who can just totally freak you out with an accent. You're one of my favorite <laughs> places in the world, which is <laughs> Le Marais in Paris, one of my favorite neighborhoods in the world. So I'm very, very jealous of your Friday afternoon. We're recording on a Friday. But let's just Start today by just giving us the rundown of like, you could do anything. You have a deep expertise in products. You've sold multiple successful companies. Why go back to the startup grind? Why focus on AI? Like, how do we get here is what I'm trying to figure out. I think the answer ends up being quite simple. You know, in this specific case, I was in a very comfortable spot at a great company, amazing experience. And I don't think that it would have taken less than the kind of change we're seeing in the world to pull me away and and start from zero. And I'm very lucky to do it with somebody I've known for a long time and trust immensely, especially on the top of your hand. So that makes it a little easier. Yeah, your co-founder was at OpenAI for the last four years, but also a great friend. So it's like the perfect kind of intersection of somebody you know and trust, but also somebody who has a deep understanding and pulse of like what's going on in this change. Yeah, exactly. So some amount of de-risking. When, when you're sort of somewhere in your 30s, you kind of feel like you want to check a few boxes off before getting started with somebody else. Well, so what was the moment you thought this inflection point was worth leaving the old world and the old way of doing things and take the risk, do the startup? Was it like a conversation with your co-founder? Was it just something you experienced? Like, what was that moment like? In being able to take information in an unstructured way and repackage it on the fly with a level of detail that people need. These text generation models seemed like they'd split a bit of an atom. There was really something that could not be done previously and that all of a sudden could be done. So I think when you look at technology and you think about you know things that were not possible and that are now possible, that felt like the aha. Yeah, it seems like a lot of founders have a similar answer that there was just this moment where they were like, I can relook at problems that were unsolvable in the past or solved in a like really inefficient way. And there's this new technological shift and we can actually go back and start to relook at all the things that we were not able to solve or in a really efficient way and start to like relook at those problems, which is really fascinating. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really curious about is in the future, 
I'm trying to figure out, are we all building on top of like custom open source models that are very specific for a problem that we're trying to solve? Mm. Or are we all building on like one or two models like OpenAI, Google, Anthropic, like a couple of models eats up all the space? How do you think that plays out? I think it is mechanically probable that we'll be using an array of models. From a pedantic standpoint, you could say, you know, if if one of the big guys solves AGI, then we're all working on one model and actually none of us are working right. at all. We're all on the beach. And then the... the, the, the <laughs> well, explain for everybody watching what AGI means and why that would be true. Yeah, so the, the, the concept of artificial general intelligence is the idea that machines with a certain degree of artificial intelligence may reach a point where they are in many ways more capable than us at approaching and solving pretty much any problem that we throw at them. And without going into the, the doomsday version of that scenario, you could just imagine that if machines could do everything we can do in a better, faster, more accurate, more dependable, more auditable, more explainable way, we wouldn't have the ability to deploy the same economic models that we have today, where people have to get paid to do that work, because it is likely that we'd be able to pay machines to do it with more constraints and less concern for their ability to work 24-7, as one of many examples or reasons we might want to do that. So. The idea that, you know, if AGI ever happens, then it will fundamentally shift most of our experiences. I think if you're a plumber, this doesn't concern you as much. Although, you know, in interesting <laughs> ways, you know, I, I feel that Y has gotten to try and play out that scenario. And maybe even plumbing gets changed because we start designing pipes in a way that doesn't fail half as much. And then you know, plumbers don't have that much to fix. But that's the idea is that AI is very much not at that point right now. And you know, some people believe that in the future, we will reach a point where we have AGI and that changes everything. But if we don't get there, and in the interim, I'd argue that for specific tasks, some models are just better than others. And that you might want to just use those models. They also sometimes happen to be less costly to use when they are used on a specific task. Uh, so the, the idea that one model will solve all your needs seems unlikely just because well, you could find examples of very specific tasks that are very well solved today by models that are not at all in the transformer family. I think that's a super great explanation. I would, uh, you know, we're, we're all hanging out and talking on Friday, September 15th, 2023. We're going to mark that date and time down <laughs> because I want to ask you a question that's like, as of today, what do you think AI is really great at? You know, we just talked about how, you know, it can't solve humanity's problems, but at the same time, there's this big inflection point. So what do you think it is really great at today? If you're just the average person, average business leader out there thinking about the applications, where do you think it's like, you know, kind of an A plus level at right now? Taking a quick step back, I think that, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning models have been great at some things for a while. Yeah. Uh, you take, you know, the family of classification problems. Is this a cat? We've pretty much solved that problem. Like it is very likely that if a cat shows up on camera, some amount of software is able to detect it with incredible accuracy. Uh, we've also done tremendous work on prediction. You know, given the stuff that we've seen in the past, my sales, my revenue, my ability to deploy some amount of stuff in the world, what does next year look like? Great models there. You know, I think the weather modeling uh, abilities that have, to a certain degree, used artificial intelligence machine learning are very, very powerful there. In this new family that everybody's very excited about, generation, what's crazy is that we're sort of asking the model to get stuff empirically like wrong sometimes. I think wrong is, is, is a bit of a judgment. We're, we're asking yeah. it to come up with answers that are surprising. And by 
tuning how wrong and how right or how, you know, how predictable or how unpredictable the answers are, we're actually able to guide it into just generating things that are very plausible and seem incredible. So I would say that today's generation of generative models, superbly interesting and exciting in coming up with stuff that sometimes just lets you be, stay gobsmacked at like the creativity or just the, the sheer randomness and some of the connections that are being made. That's one pretty obvious example. I think another one that I like is just the ability to take fairly unstructured data and move it into a structured format. Right. Uh, so essentially saying that we've got this family of things and I would like you to make them look like this family of things. And that, that is a very hard problem. And this generation of models is also very exciting in, in that category. And that in the workplace on text has many, many applications that we had thus of course excited about because it sort of starts hacking away at some things where very deterministic use cases were good, but non-deterministic use cases were not easy to solve. You know, we've got Karen on the, on the show, of course, like Zapier has been amazing at giving us like connections between silos of software where it seemed crazy that in the, you know, 2010s or 2020s, we couldn't get this piece of software to talk this piece of software, but they had to be connected and talking to each other in a fairly well-codified way. And I think we're just expanding the family of, of scenarios where, you know, one piece of software can talk to another piece of software. So that's something I'm, I'm seeing and that I think we're already pretty great at. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the kind of unstructured to structured, just in terms of like even very simplistic use cases that are most common that we've seen companies start to integrate into how they build their business. You know, you see that in the customer support side where you're able to like aggregate all of the support information put it in topics and start to have that being answered by actual live chat, which is AI led. So much more efficiencies in customer support, even in sales, like I've seen it in sales where you kind of ingest all of the data about a prospect or a contact that's being put into your CRM or in other places. And you're able to like use AI to concisely format that and give a sales rep like an incredible talk deck for each individual call, like mm -hmm. nearly write in a contextual mini guide to each account. And so when the salesperson goes onto that call, they're able to be incredibly well educated about that person. And we've seen it as well, where we're ingesting like content we've wrote in terms of PR releases or social releases. And someone in our team was like really smart and created all these mini bots. And so when you want to write a PR release or you want to do social in a certain way, it's aggregated all the data and can put it back out in a certain format for you. And I know that's like more simplistic, but they're like real use cases. We're starting to see companies actually integrate and make use of because there is this kind of ongoing, like what is the hype part of AI? And then like, what are people actually using it for? Yeah, another, another, another example that, that I see coming up a lot in some of our design partners and, and early users uh, companies is, is just, you know, people having a conversation at the digital water cooler, whether it's Slack or, or, or somewhere else. And the conversation is actually about a topic that could be, you know, described as being in one of two or three categories. We're talking about an incident. We're talking about a product feature idea. We're talking about a roadmap prioritization thing. And then the ability to just tag that and say, oh, by the way, this is a product feature idea and not have right. to do anything manually <laughs> downstream from that. And it just ends up in the right place in the right format with the right details. It's kind of magical. That's the again, yeah. unstructured to structured scenario that I get excited by. Yeah, I think that's a great like way to term a lot of the use cases actually fall into that. Some of the best use cases when you're kind of sitting around for, you know, imagine a dinner. I imagine you have dinner with a bunch of founder friends and you're like the AI 
Steiner. Paris. He's having the best dinners. Yeah, he's Come having great, di- great dinners. And you have like Frangers. Best wine. I'm so sad right now. You know, they're building non-cool things that are non-AI. So they're still in the world of like just building technology. They're not really thinking through AI. What do you tell founders they should start using AI for today? Like what do you tell companies they should start to, to use AI for today? Because it's just a 10x better result than what you can get done in the past. Yeah. I try not to be too directional in the solution they should use, but I am generally curious to ask like what problems they have right now that they feel top of mind. And then just like pepper in some examples that I see that are being attacked where those problems are being attacked with a sort of generative AI solution or approach. And then discuss whether that's hype or maybe, you know, it's been done in a better way before and, and we shouldn't believe that the hype cycle on Gen AI solving that particular problem. But I, I think that if you're a leader of a company, you've got a few problems other than just staying alive and keeping money in the coppers. You're trying to make your product better. And that can be a broad number of things. It's got to be better for certain segments. It's got to be better for all segments. It's got to be better on a certain job. It's got to be better perceived, like the value it's delivering has to show up in a better way. Then there's like how you run your company and sort of internally on some of the stuff that people may never get to see, but that is essentially the difference between a low margin and a high margin version of the same product. Like you have to make that better too. And on the former category, I think that I generally challenge people to imagine, you know, how different their website or their app would look if people had a human that they could just talk to mm-hmm. to get the stuff they get done mm-hmm. and to start from there and work it backwards. Because I think that the era of filling in 75 forms that may or may not be well highlighted in your browser, that you may or may not be able to you know, select the right date in the right year on the right day without spending 45 minutes on. I think those are coming to an end a little faster than we imagine, just because when you think about it, nobody ever wanted to select a travel date to and a travel date back by looking at two very finicky forms where you have to be clicking all the time. So those are just examples where I think you can sort of start from the ideal situation and then sort of roll backwards and break it down. It may end up being a degraded solution today, but then world is dynamic, lots are getting better. You can always imagine those improvements. And on the internal use cases, I try to ask something, depending on the stage of their company, what are the things that make you mad? Why do you sometimes feel that your company isn't running as well or as smoothly as it could? And sometimes it's, you know, I don't have the right people or like the right people are working on the wrong things, right? Like I put the right people on the right things, but there's too few of them. And on each of those situations, I think that the degree to which these models are able to assist, not replace, but augment, or amplify, if you're going to use Reid Hoffman's term in a very optimistic and positive light, the humans that are there. I think there are many, many options where at the end of that dinner, and by the way, at dinners in Paris, if you're the AI guy or the tech guy, you're generally asked to shut up because there's way more interesting people at the table. Maybe that's good. Maybe that, maybe that means they pour you a little bit more wine and like, it, it's, it's all pretty good. But, but at the end of those conversations, they, there's generally a list of things that they feel they can look at, you know, any of the models we've heard about a thousand times with a different eye and with a little more excitement because nobody doesn't have one of those problems. Like nobody doesn't have these inefficiencies or these missed opportunities or these ways in which you know, their teams are not collaborating effectively enough. And so I think there's a to-do list, at least for inquiry, curiosity, and introspection for absolutely everybody who is working in technology. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, 
is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think the place where I am seeing like teams adopt it pretty rapidly, I'm not sure what you think, Kip, but is like the kind of go-to-market space. Like we had an example in a talk Kip and I give where we've been playing around with it for personalized emails. And those emails are just so much better. They're not perfect because I still think AI misses the kind of real personal touch. But in terms of being contextual, they're just so much better than anything that has come prior because it's able to just ingest so much more data and personalize that again, unstructured to structured. Mm. It's just able to do that at such a vaster scale than we've been able to to do in the past. So I do think going back over the kind of go-to-market and the quantifying where you have not being able to do something incredibly personalized en masse is a good place to start. The other one that I just wanted to touch on really quickly was... Hold on, can I go back before yeah. you move into the next one? Yeah, on yeah, the, yeah. the personalization en masse, I think is a very important use case for everybody out there. Kieran, at Inbound, we got to hang out some, but I think on Thursday of Inbound, you had a debacle of changing hotels. Oh my God. You had to switch hotels, but then you went to the wrong hotel. Then you finally got to the right hotel. Sorry about that. But because of that, I think you missed the startup pitch competition at Inbound. I was a judge for the startup pitch competition. And one of the winners of that competition was a company called Tavis. And what they do is they do mass AI video personalization. So basically, Mm. you train the model on your voice and your movements and everything on video. Then you can record a video and then, you know, basically with text, then go back and personalize that same video to have very intricate differences for hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people, whatever the intention is. And so it's another good example of a product that like you can go use today that you don't have to have a ton of technical experience, actually like none, and personalize at scale. And so I do think that personalize at scale use case is one of the most accessible ones. Would you use any of the videos you saw from there? And I'm not like trying to call that company out because the other one I looked at, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hey Jen is the other example, I think of a company doing really incredible stuff in the video space. But I think there are spaces where AI is like go to market ready and where AI is like, Uncanny Valley. But yeah, it just it's just there's a gap. And I think video is one of them. I think, well, I think because of how they're doing it, because it's a pre-recorded video, because of how they're training the model, what I have seen so far is that I would. So Sam Parr was there. Shout out Sam over at My First Million. And he was like a beta user of them, like a little, like I think like a year ago. And he was like, ah, it's just like the lips, like mouth syncing and some of the stuff was just slightly off. But I think they're pretty close to having it now. I think if you're a sales rep and you're doing outreach to 200 prospects, like 
it's probably worth a try, right? right? Like, and I'm sure depending on what you're talking about, it's probably better at some words, some sounds than others. But I feel like you and I should try it with each other at some point. Yeah, send each other videos. It's like that automated yeah. video and you get a, hey, John, would you like to <laughs> buy my product and get on a call? <laughs> it is perfect for yeah. Acme Inc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably, it's probably going to be like, it is perfect for product undefined. Then that's what the integration <laughs> it is going to need some work on in the background. Kieran, one of the, the use cases you mentioned, like a founder of a company that the LLMs come up with a couple of suggestions of puns of the customer, the prospect's name and their own company name and just has oh, three suggestions. Cool. And he's like, he doesn't always pick one, but he's like, if one of them sounds good and sounds better than just like the, the, the token subject line that I'm going to go for, uh, added in every time, zero cost for me to have the suggestions. But I think that's even just that dynamic of the proposals are getting it. There's no more white page block. Yeah. You have something to start from and iterate on. Nobody's asking these models to actually be perfect. And I think that's the wrong bar to hold some of these use cases too, because no human is perfect. And yet all of us or many of us have a very exciting jobs with a lot of responsibilities. And you know, I think it was the CIO of Bridgewater that commented on GPT-4 saying, you know, by all standards that we've been able to, to measure them on. The GPT-4 behaves like an 80th percentile analyst in some discrete use cases. It's like, great, that's an amazing stat because what that says is it's better than median analyst on these use cases. And so if the question is, should we spin up another GPT-4 to answer this question? The answer so it should always be yes. It doesn't mean they're perfect. And I don't think any business needs like perfect individuals to be running. They just need augmented and better versions of the people. They well, have. I think your point there is the exact right point. When's the last time that you had somebody on your team do something and they came back and it was absolutely perfect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen, right? Because that's that's not how humans work, right? We work on an iterative process. And I think one of the things that's been so transformative about the last year in artificial intelligence is that we now have technology that we can work with in our own language, you know, natural language and iterate with. You know, even if you're just on chat GPT, you could go through and start with fairly benign topic or question and really go back and forth for a long time, like yeah. 30 minutes, an hour to really iterate and learn together, which is, I think, one of the hardest things about where we're at today is that's just a big departure for the average human. Oh, it's a huge, to go and do. huge paradigm shift. We've been trained for 50 years to work with calculators, things that are not particularly smart, but that always do the thing you tell them to do. And now we're moving to a world where the machines all of a sudden are giving us a distribution of answers instead of a point mm, answer, exactly. a stochastic yeah. answer instead of an yeah. exact answer. And people are like, all oh, the hallucinations, the errors, you know, everything. But th- th- that is just a new way to approach the discussion you're having with the machine. And I think that that's the biggest paradigm shift, which is one of the reasons we're excited about working on the product and application layer, because I think the experiences that needs to guide, assist, educate, reassure the users in adopting this kind of software have yet to be invented. Like, I don't believe that the pull to refresh moment of large language models has happened yet. I I cannot, I refuse to accept that chatbot interfaces are where it's at when there's so much more that we can do to assist users in collaborating with software. I'll just give one example, right? I think we've sometimes just taken the LLMs and place them where we had workflows or where we had existing measurable inefficiencies and ask them to do a better version of them. But sometimes in reversing the kind of interaction you come up with in the first place, you can imagine a whole new series of interactions. Like why are you going to the documents to update it based on a proposal? Why is the document not coming to you suggesting a change to itself? Because it's noticed that something else has happened in the background. Right. You know, why is your inbox not full of things that a machine has decided is, you know, probably a good way to spend your day, 
rather than us saying, you know, I'm going to decide on my to-do list and then ask the machine to go and knock those tasks out one after the other. All these things are really going to change a lot more and in directions and ways that we don't anticipate. And it's going to happen in the interface. It's going to happen at the keyboard. It's going to happen on the screen. It's not all going to happen on the number of parameters or the size of the context window or the foundational level at which a lot of the press and a lot of the interest right now is focusing attention. Yeah. I have one thing I want to try out on you because it's really related to what you just said. And then think about if we all had a million dollars to place a bet on a couple of companies, what category we would place them in? Because I've broken AI up into three core areas that there's many areas, but of like interest in me, which is companies doing something externally, which means like using AI tools to project work out, which is like out to customers. And that's really like personalization at scale, right? That's something we've just talked yep. about. Like, how can you just like personalize your every touch point? From the emails you send, from the website, like all of these touch points, how can you do personalization at scale? The next one coming internally now, so that was externally, internally is like knowledge at scale. Knowledge at scale is like, how do you make companies run much more efficiently by ingesting all of the data and doing exactly what you just said? Like telling teams, what are the top things that they should do based upon like, all I've just ingested all this analytics. I can tell the marketing team, these are actually the things you should do. I can tell the sales team, these are actually the things that you should focus on. Like these are the kind of winning deals. I can tell the customer success team, these are actually the accounts that you should look at. And hey, there's something changed over here. I should update this and like inform you of it. And so you can run companies much more efficiently. And then the one that's behind all of that is like a customization at scale which is the reason I started asking about open source versus like open AI or Google to begin with, which is like mass customization of models just suit company and company needs. That's kind of how I've broken out like the three categories that I'm personally kind of looking for companies within those spaces. Mm. But if you all had like a million dollars to like place a couple of bets, you can't pick your own because I think that you're, you can correct me, Gabriel, but I think you're in the knowledge at scale. Uh, yeah, I, I think in, in the way to work. And so I think the, the way to work is is just like making good decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to do. Like the DAO is, in my humble opinion, the very wrong answer to a very real problem. It's like if you vote by consensus on anything at a company, that company is probably going to die. Correct. But like having the right context, the right information, the right dependencies, knowing what's changed somewhere in another team at the right time, that's hard. It's tough problem to solve. Now that's where we are. So it's not necessarily knowledge. As the reason I, I shy away from knowledge is because I think knowledge is never a thing people wake up and they're excited to go to work to do. They, say, they want to have all the knowledge. Now they want to solve problems. Yeah. They want to make decisions. context. Yeah, exactly. I think context I like context. I, but it's, and it's just like working better, right? I think if you, yeah. if yeah. you imagine the future of that, it might be that you work with some people who are human, you collaborate with some assistants that are not human, but the blurred lines between the two have become seamless because you now trust the fact that you know, important decisions will get reviewed by the right entities at the right time. And by the way, that entity may be human or not, because sometimes it's not the human making the most informed decision about the go, no go point. But like all these things, I think are just going to change. But like, if I had a, a million bucks, there's one category and I don't know which one it would fit on, but there's one problem space or at least like thing that I'm not working on directly, but that I do think is interesting. It's just like how a data mm. paradigms, data ownership paradigms going to shift. Like you, if you ask a developer who's like top of their class on using their particular IDE, their developer environment, and they just tuned it for 10 years and they will not budge for a million years or a million bucks. And then you imagine every type of worker having access to that amount of customization because the assistance that they have around them now just do all the things that they need to get done and mm. way better. If you spend seven years at HubSpot and then after seven years of amazing work, you want to move on. How much of that do you get to take with you? And what kind of contracts will the best companies have to rewrite in order to negotiate with their employees 
the fact that like, we appreciate you so much that we want you to come and work here, but we understand that what you're going to do here is also something you might want to in part take away with you to keep this environment of an exoskeleton or just like amplification. And you don't ask a football player after three years in a given club to just give up the skills and tactics and secrets they learn when they move on, right? But now we're going to have this entire new space of ways in which people get amplified while they work somewhere. So that's one area where I think there could be something very disruptive. Because if you can contractualize that somehow, encode that somehow, and bake it into software rather than have just the contract layer do it, I think it will unleash very creative personal use cases for assistance, where you might want to essentially you know, augment yourself with a certain model for a certain use cases in, in or out of the workplace act. Right. As that's one, I don't know which category would be in. in no, I, lo- I love that. I, love uh, that. I thought that was awesome. I think it was actually one of the best like examples of use cases that we haven't really talked about on the show yet. For all of our American viewers, when he says football, he means soccer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sure Matt, just to clear. Balls and soul, just the same. <laughs> yes, but, 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 sim- but, but similarly, the point I want to follow up with there is, is, is on a lot of these you have to put like, your million bucks somewhere, Kip. Yeah, I'm going to tell you where I'm going to put my million bucks. I'm, you just give it to I'm me. putting it on data infrastructure yeah. and I'm putting it on the the personalization layer externally, Kieran, because the thing I'm most worried about, and this is no slight to, to Gabriel and the team at Dust, is I'm worried at the human society's ability to give up control. Mm. And a lot of what, Gabriel, you've talked about so far today, it's like awesome. And I'm like, Sign me up for that. But it's a relinquishing of control, right? It's like, oh, instead of me looking at my inbox, I'm going to let somebody else triage my inbox. Instead of me managing my calendar, just like robots manage my calendar. You have an EA, right? Well, I'm great at relinquishing control. I don't want control of anything. I relinquish control. (laughs) I don't want anyone to have control. Like, I don't need control of shit. I just want to like work, you know, do some work and like give me, if I my happiest time would be like, here, you have one thing to do today and oh spend God. eight hours and do that thing amazing would be like the best <laughs> life ever, right? One of the, the users we were talking to is like, I just want to be able to replace myself with a model that has all of my knowledge, but the same Slack handle. And then when I go out of office, they just reply to the questions that I get asked. And if at the end of my first week out of office, 80% of those responses were good enough, I'll take a second week off. And I'll just like wait for people to be like, wait, it's not Scott. I think that amount of really crazy. like, it's pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, 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 I completely take your point. I, I completely take your point. I think there's going to be reluctance to relinquish control. And actually, I don't believe that you're building a, a product that's got a, a high chance of being su- successful if the way you market it is, please give us the control and we will give you a yes. magic wand. But I do feel that the boundaries of what control looks and feels like may be interestingly detailed and in, in some cases quite jagged. Like I, th- I think that if it's, hey, we're going to delegate the stuff you never really wanted to do anyway. And, you know, we've actually looked at the way you work and some of the stuff you procrastinate yeah. on fits this pattern. And here's a way for this kind of work, which by the way, you're still paid to do well. So you can't just kind of skip it. Here's how we can give you a leg up or a head start on that. I think then it's not necessarily viewed as, oh, I'm relinquishing control so much as it is like I'm de-averaging well, yeah, no, the stuff that I'm doing day in, day out. Well, and look, we do have a track record of humans giving up some control. Like, you know, if you look at the social web, the era of the social web, people gave up a ton of control of their likeness, their personal data, data, all of those things, because the connectivity added so much value. Mm. Now, now they're trying to hedge that and care about data privacy and all this stuff. I'm like, you actually don't care. You just only care when it's not valuable enough. And I think that same standards holds true in AI. 
If you can deliver that 10x value mm-hmm. to somebody, they're going to relinquish control. But if you can't, like, I guess the standard of proof is just much higher. It's too behind. When you're working with like that internal knowledge worker who's doing that thing, it has to be not just a little better. It has to literally be 10x better for them to give up control. And we're using that term broadly, but to truly change their habits, we'll say. Absolutely. And I think in some ways what you're asking people to do is, you know, we've gotten all these amazing let's call them assistants, for lack of a better term, around us now, uh, how many of them do you want to use? Uh, the, the real question we're asking them is like, we're going to ask you to make difficult decisions on when to trust the machine back to our you know, stochastic behavior of the model. So we're going to ask, actually ask you to make judgment calls more often during the day. And what's in the balance is you looking dumb or smart in the way these are actually get used. So right. pushing control will happen in a way where people realize, yeah, I, I may, you know, I've drafted this memo on GPT-4. And my boss just crossed out this paragraph, which is nonsensical because it is talking about events that are occurring next year as if they occurred in the past. I, I really can just control the, the wrong level of granularity there and I'm getting caught for it. It seems like the average knowledge worker is going to have a choice in the future. Do they care more about saving time or do they care more about looking good? Because if you care more about looking good, you're probably going to be more skeptical of AI, be less likely to relinquish control, be less okay with those times when these models gets it wrong. When if your first principle is like, look, I want to save the time and in saving the time, I can go and do the most impactful things. And that's actually what's going to drive my career versus like these perceptions. Then you're going to have a huge advantage. Yeah, the whole effort or the effort versus hearing about other people's perceptions is going to be crazy. Yeah, yeah, I I think people, knowledge workers at any level in their career are going to have to ask themselves, was I when I was hearing the effort versus impact spiel? Was I actually paying attention? And deep down in my ego, do I actually like having impact or do I like ticking off items on the checklist? And it makes me feel Correct. good. Because if that's the thing you're attached to and that's the thing you go into work to do every day, a lot of that is probably going to change and you're not necessarily, smoked. yeah, that's not necessarily yeah. going to be around in the same way. Whereas if what you're focused on is like the impact of what I do, the shape of what I do may be very different, but the direction in which it's pushing the company, the direction in which it's pushing my team, that's what I care about. I think that versatility exists within a lot of the people that might still feel a little, a little afraid or a little tentative on things. Yeah, I think it's going to be a prerequisite that knowledge workers need to learn how to use these tools because it's there's going to be a category of knowledge workers who don't, and they're going to be the equivalent of pushing a push bike around, and then the people who do are like driving a Ferrari around in terms of their speed to execute work, right? And there's just going to be a huge gulf between those two categories of workers. I was trying to find an example, actually, when you brought up the person who wants to just answer questions. There's a, a really funny example of someone who did set that up and it was answering emails for them. And then because it hallucinates, it randomly told one of their coworkers or maybe their boss to go f*** themselves. <laughs> I was trying to look for that example. So hallucination still, you know, you yeah. still have to have like some, I think, ways to be able to like sign off of the... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a couple of examples of lawyers citing case law in the US yeah, that doesn't yeah, exist, yeah, right? Yeah, I yeah. think that was yeah. a pretty blatant. I, you can get disbarred for less than that yeah. in theory. So I think it's, it's yeah, hey, the, the, the off moments are still very off and managing risk is a tough part of a human's life. Understanding right. upside versus downside potential exactly. is actually a yeah. complex conversation. And that's exactly the world we're going towards because these are not calculators anymore. They're, they're stochastic machines. Exactly. Cool. Gabrielle, we want to say a huge thanks for coming on. Huge fans of you, huge fans of the company. I've heard nothing but incredible things about, about you that people have told me and all of them are true. This was a great episode. Thanks so much for having me on. So appreciate you taking time. You've certainly earned the glass of wine with the team. <laughs> Go hit the mare and we'll talk to you again soon. Super lovely. Take care. Thank you so much. Cheers.